back in the 70s, which is, I know, dinosaurs roaming the earth, kids. I get it. Uh, yeah, I'm old. But anyway, back in the 70s. And back then, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. There was like a Sunday afternoon thing. There was a pre-Sunday thing. There was a Wednesday night thing. There was a Saturday thing. There was a Thursday thing. My life was at church until I was like 18, okay, or 17 or whatever it was. And so that's how I was raised. And then, believe it or not, you know, one day I moved out on my own and I began to have my own ideas about faith. And my first idea of faith was I'm sick of going to church. That was my first one, okay? And so for five, six, seven years, I can't even remember how many it was, I didn't. I wanted to. I tried a few times. I disappointed a lot of pastors because they thought that I would, could help them, but I would try and quit, try and quit. And this happened until I was about 23. And so I went through this phase in my life where I had a faith. I didn't really care about it for a season. Didn't want to care about it. There were some other reasons I don't have time to go into that were there uh, in my life and in my heart at the time. But then at 23, God popped my eyes open. And then the faith I had at 6, 10, 15 was not enough, was not significant for the reality I was dealing with as a father at that time of three children a job that I was working almost 100 hours a week, a wife that I was not loving properly in any way. And so God opened my eyes, and I realized that I had to have my own faith. I had to start. Now you're saying, Michael, there's just one faith. I know, that's why there are so many denominations out there. Yeah, I would agree there's one faith, there's one Bible, there's a lot of things like that. And the Bible even says that. But what it is, I'm trying to say, is you have to make it your own. Your faith has to be able to stand up to the life that you're living. Does that make sense? It has to be something you can lean on and understand. So that's where Steve and I are coming in with starting point. And Steve laid an excellent foundation last week of how that... For a lot of people today, either coming back to faith or have never even been in faith, to tell them, well, you know, the Bible says this, so you should just do that, that won't fly. And if, you have, if you're a parent of grown children, you know that won't fly. Okay? And so what we're trying to do is, one, if you are trying to come back to faith, restart your faith, we're trying to help you with that and work through some of those nuances and some of those ideas. I'm also, it's very important to me to give the parents and the grandparents in this room the ability to actually talk to their kids about faith without running them out the door. Because isn't that what happens? As a parent, you're like, okay, son, that's all I can say because that's all I have is sons, but I have amazing daughters-in-law. But son, you need to go to church. What happens when you say that? That conversation just ended, and they're leaving quickly. Son, you you need to trust the Bible. That's not going to work. You see what I'm saying? And for some of you, you, you're at that place as well. And so what we're trying to do with this series is we're trying to stop converting people to the Bible and to church. We'd like them first to meet Jesus. We figure the rest of it, that, that comes in another process. Does that make any sense at all? Okay, give me a nod if that makes some sense. So that's what we're trying to do with this series. Give you a starting point that you can, so that we can all kind of agree and work together on our faith. 
You need to remember that in your small groups too. I hope all of you have found a circle to talk about these kind of things in. I want you all to do that. We have several available. And, uh, but I also want you to remember that when you have those conversations... That the, these are, this is not an opportunity to dig deep in theology. This is laying a foundation for faith, not building cathedrals of faith. Okay, this is a foundation. And our foundation question we asked last week is, who is Jesus? Now, you guys have been in church a while. You're going, yeah, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God and all these kinds of things that you, you know. And you, maybe you lean into Trinitarian beliefs or Unitarian beliefs or some other Aryan beliefs? I'm just kidding. That's not right. <laughs> but <laughs> that was so awful. I don't know where it came from. But uh, you, maybe you lean into any of those. That was not the point. Who is Jesus is not about, about the high theology of Jesus. We actually gave you, I'm not sure what happened. I lost my slides there, Dwayne. Hopefully they come back. We actually gave you a verse. If you could bring up the uh, Acts passage. That's it. Steve gave you the answer to the question before he asked the question. We do this a lot. And the answer is right there in Acts 17, 31. God proved to everyone that who, who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. So your main conclusion from last week is just that simple concept that Jesus is the dude that Jesus rose from the dead. As we work through this process, you're either going to fall in love with that idea or get totally ticked off by that idea. That is the purpose of the question. Okay? That's exactly what happened to, to Paul. Okay, so with all that wrapped up and now technology is somewhat moving, let's dive into where we're going to end today. So I'm going to start with the ending. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And, and this is probably a text that everyone's heard in church. This is a subject that everyone has heard someone in church, a pastor, or some theologian talk about. But Romans 3.23, you may be familiar with. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. What drives me crazy is when the church stops reading the Bible at convenient places. When Christians do. And so this is one of those texts that everyone knows Romans 3.23 and almost no one knows Romans 3.24. And so I put it up there for you because I thought you might want to know what it says. Because yes, everyone has sinned, but verse 24 says, And yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We're going to come back to that verse. That's where we're going to land at the end, okay? But I wanted to sandwich what we're talking about with this idea. Because Steve already told you we're talking about sin. And I know people that as soon as they hear that, like, well, I'm pretty sure he's against it. I'm out, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I am against it. Uh, not as much as I wish I were against it. <laughs> I obviously enjoy some very much. But nonetheless, it's an uncomfortable idea, the idea of sin. The Bible brings it up. You don't hear it in any other walk of life. Only theologians, Bible teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, nuns, priests, only religious people ever use the word sin. I mean, if your boss walks into you tomorrow and says, Joe, you've sinned against me, you're in trouble. It's going to be a bad day. Okay? If your mom walks into your room and you're a teenager and says, you've sinned against the family, this isn't going to go well. 
It's not going to start out well. It's just not a term that we use. Well, I'm going to say that. Maybe they do use it in your, I don't know. But not most people don't come out and say, you sinned against me. The, the police, they don't pull you over because you drive the speed limit 92% of the time. They don't pull you over and say to you, you've sinned against the laws and ordinances of Rock Springs or the state of Wyoming. Judges don't sentence people to prison or are fines because they've sinned. That's not in the lingo. So when you hear the word sin, it immediately gets your guard up. It immediately gets you defensive. It immediately puts you in a place where like, ah, I don't want to be in trouble. I don't like the way this feels. It's just an ugly, confining, limiting, scary word. And the idea just leaves us, it leaves us with an unbalance. It leaves us with an an imbalance in our lives. An an unbalanced equation, if you will. I'm going to play a little bit. I flunked math several times. No, I'm just kidding. In kindergarten. Uh, But... uh, we, here's, this, here's this equation that we find, we hear from church, we see in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sin. We'll define sin in a very, very, very simple way later. But we, we hear sin, and then we'll, we'll put that in a parenthesis, and, and we'll, we'll add to that, that multiplier, that exponential multiplier, that there's guilt to the infinite power, and there's shame multiplying it also to the infinite power. Sin, guilt, shame. There's the one side of the equation. What goes on the other side? What balances? Because that isn't that one of the, the key principles of, of math and of, of reason is that we have to balance the equations. We have to come up with something equals something. But this leaves us, we see this one side of the equation and there's no wiggle room. It doesn't feel good. It, it makes us self-conscious. It's uncomfortable. Sin. What do we do? We substitute another word. We're very good at this. We like to be, I call it tact. That's what I call it, tact. Ah, you're not a sinner. You just made a few mistakes. <laughs> That's why you're in prison. <laughs> made a few mistakes. Mistakes. Because if I said to you, and I don't want anyone to raise their hands. No one raise your hand. But if I said to this room, all right, everyone who's ever made a mistake... Raise your hand. Don't raise your hands. If you're at home, you can raise your hands. <laughs> but if you're with us, no. And because that's an unfair question, because the front row is up here listening for rustling. They're like, are they going to be honest? I don't know. I'm, I'll wait. But if I ask you, who in this room has sinned? I mean, all the church people would, sure, yeah, of course, I have to. My pastor beat it into me. But most people would be like, ah, sin's so harsh. <laughs> Just, it hurts when you say it, right? So we replace the word sin. We substitute the word sin with this idea of mistakes. We make mistakes, and we can balance the equation with mistakes, Because we can get rid of the sin and the guilt and the shame. We put mistakes in the left column. We put the equal sign there. Now all we got to do is make some adjustments. We just have to make some corrections. We don't have to fix yesterday because it was just a mistake. I was ignorant. 
I didn't know. I was dumb. I was untrained. No one helped me. I, I didn't have the tools I needed. And on and on and on and on it goes. We, we got mistakes. So all I have to do to balance the equation, I got to make a few adjustments. I just need to correct a few things. I just, I, I know I can do better going forward. I can do, I can do better. I believe that about me. And so we balance the equation and we really soften the answer, but there's a problem. Sometimes, maybe not all of you, that's me being sarcastic. <laughs> Sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. <laughs> Sometimes we buy plane tickets for our mistakes. <laughs> Sometimes we fabricate receipts for our mistakes. Sometimes we do all kinds of things in preparation that we might and kind of hope we do make a mistake. What's that? That's not. I was ignorant. That's why I didn't know. I mean, seriously, how, how many famous people have we really have we seen stand at a podium and say, I've made a mistake. <laughs> You've been making this mistake for 10 years in a row. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a mistake. I mean, really, is it the right word? Does mistake really cut it? Because if mistake doesn't cut it, how do we balance the equation? And that's the rub. That's the fear. That's what we never want to talk about. That, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. What I am talking about today is a reality all of us have to address, think about, talk about. It's this issue of, of things we call mistakes, but they're more than that. They're, there's this side of the equation that if it's sin, with, and it's multiplied by guilt and shame, then there's something wrong. I don't know what is wrong. I know I'm, I have this feeling of accountability, this sense of judgment, and I, am, I fear because I don't know how to balance this equation, this fear leads to judgments. I feel judged. People, I get this, this amazes me. We'll have people come in, visit Ordinary Faith. Man, we, we have no judgment. We know we're all screw-ups here, okay? We know that. And so, but people will come in and say, well, I just, when I go to church, I feel judged. And I'm like, that ain't us. That is not us. That's inside man that's inside and you can't turn it off because there's this side of the equation it's it, it if it's not mistakes it's sin it's guilt it's shame and I, I can't if i can't balance it so i have fear i have judgment and then i have this condemnation i have this sense that i owe a debt and i don't even know what it is to someone who i don't even know who they are and yet i feel this internal weight you see, the, when we talk about this subject, we're tapping into deep inside of a person, and it's, it's simple. I, I don't need fancy theological arguments. All I have to do is point at the reality of the conflict and that twisted, hurt, scared, afraid, judged place within you. How do we fix this? Because the problem moves on. Am I a mistaker? I can fix a few things, I can go forward, or am I a sinner? 
Am I alone? Am I sad? Am I helpless? Am I hopeless? Because let's face it, you can't fix you. We've tried. And I know, I, know, I know what it was like when I was in my teens and 20s. I was thinking, yeah, I, I can take on the world 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I can beat anything. And then by the time I was, I don't know, let's see, 18, 19, 20, my first child arrived. I realized, I really can't. I want to do well, but I keep doing dumb. I want to do it right, but I keep doing it wrong. And so many of us, you've tried for years to correct you. You, you, you got a spouse who's tried to correct you, and you've equally tried to correct them, and it worked out great. <laughs> you've paid people like 120 bucks an hour or more to fix you. You sit there, and what's wrong with me? And they tell you, and you walk out and forget what they said. <laughs> that was for y'all, not me. That was for y'all. <laughs> We've lost friends, spouses, jobs, money, everything. So many things because of our propensity, our ability to just keep making these mistakes. Why can't we just quit? Why not? I mean, really, if it's a mistake, just quit. Stop getting mad. Why are you so angry for You've been mad since last year. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's another subject. We'll stop. Why, why are you mad? Why, why are you lying to people around you? Why are you lying to yourself? Just quit. Quit eating so much. Quit drinking so much. Quit looking at that stuff. Just, just quit. Sounds good. There will be like probably thousands of sermons in America that are exactly like that today. Just, just quit. Um, I don't know if I'm for you or against you on this. All I know is that when it comes to Michael, he don't just quit well. He, uh, he, he messes up quite well. So here I am back in the equation. Guilt multiplied by exponentially added guilt and shame. And I'm in a place of fear. I'm in a place of judgment, a place of condemnation. Because, guys, I make mistakes that I can't. I can say I'm sorry, which we'll come to in a minute, but I can't fix yesterday. I can't fix the people I hurt, the people I insulted, the people I offended. I, I, uh, I can't. Not to mention, there's that reality of uh, that I premeditate my mistakes. So what are we going to do? We're going to take a time and we're going to look deeper into ourselves. We're going to start with a place of honesty, not a place of judgment. I got, I got no condemnation in my bag. I, I can't add to the guilt you already carry. I don't want to. I'm not trying to get a behavior out of anyone. All I'm asking you to do, believe it or not, believe what I'm teaching or not, is take an honest look at yourself and see if you conclude the same things Jesus did. Okay, does that make sense? Because these mistakes, if that's really the word for someone who knows better and does it anyway, that's not strong enough really. What if we redefine, simp not redefine, what if we simply define? What if we 101 define? You know that initial class in school. Sin is something different. Rather than those 
those big fancy theological definitions, and I could give you a few, but I'll spare you the jumbo. Maybe I could just say that the definition of sin is that a sinner is basically someone who knows better and does it anyway. Can you go that can you go that far? You knew better, but you didn't do better. That sounds good. I should write that down. You do better. Maybe it'll be a song. Justin Bieber will pick it up. It'll be great. So what are you going to do? So that's where Steve and I are coming at the source text of the Bible. The stories. And we're, we, we just want to see what Jesus said about a few things. Because Jesus had something to say about this problem. And it's probably not what you think it is. Because people have a misconception about Jesus, you know, they, they, uh, they think that Jesus came that, and somehow he made sin okay. But that's not actually what happened. And so Jesus came with a purpose, and his purpose was restoration, because Jesus knew something. He knew that as long as we're mistakers, who can fix themselves, who can do it right, in the future. As long as we're that, we'll never get down to the seriousness of the problem because the serious issue of sin is that sin breaks a relationship. Sin breaks a relationship. That's, that's what's at stake. It's not, I can do better, I made a mistake, I'm ignorant or whatever. The, the real issue is, is that when there's sin involved, a relationship is broken. And, and you can't just fix something that's broken by ignoring it and going forward as fast as you can. It's the American way, but it doesn't work. It's why we struggle with relationships in our world today, because of an inability or an unwillingness to accept that. So Jesus knew this issue of sin versus mistaking is a very important issue. And so when you have a broken relationship, you have to approach that differently. You mess up a math equation, you just get out the eraser, change the wrong figure, correct it, and you get a different answer on the other side of the equal sign. But when a relationship is broken with your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your friend, when a relationship is broken, you don't just erase what happened and charge through the equal sign into bliss. When someone confronts you about your behavior, what do you say? Especially if it's your wife. I'm a guy, so I identify with with men and, and some of our faults. Not that I have all the faults you have, but <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> your wife comes to you and says, I, the, the, you're, I, am, uh, I am not experiencing you well right now. She, that's, a, that's a nice way of saying it. The experience of Michael is not the joy that it once was. <laughs> and I... And I come back, and here's what I do, because I'm, I'm a guy, and then, of course then I feel like I'm in trouble, because on, on the inside, in my broken place, I'm six years old, and someone's yelling at me, and, and so forth, and so I come back, and I say, sorry. I don't say, I'm sorry. Leave an exit, guys, right? You're like, Michael, this is going to get you slapped down. I know, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I'm not experiencing you well right now, Michael. It's not what it's. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not I'm. It's like halfway there. 
I'm sorry. How are we going to restore the relationship? There has to be, in order for the relationship to be restored, something more than just plowing through a mistake has to happen. There has to be some kind of reconciliation. There has to be some kind of honest acceptance of things to happen, of of what has happened, a a realization that something has happened, and an acceptance of that. So mankind is in a broken relationship with God. How do you fix that? And that's what this whole sin issue is, this whole mistaking thing about. And so when you go to Jesus, what does Jesus say about it? Does Jesus say, oh, it's okay. Come on in. We'll just restore the relationship. You don't have to do anything. That's what a lot of people think. But that's not exactly how Jesus rolled. Jesus approached it from an entirely different angle. So let me set this up. Jesus is talking to a lot of really, really good people. Like, can you imagine someone that that's their job is to be good? You're like, that's your job, Michael. Oh, you're going to let me go. <laughs> no, because that's not me. <laughs> I'm the naughty. I'm naughty. Anyway, so, uh, and Steve and I kind of empower each other in our naughtiness, but that's another thing. Um, so, Jesus is, is teaching people about the kingdom and about how things work before God and with God and so forth. And, and, and he's teaching, like, in the crowd of these people who are the professional good people. They're good for a living. They're the Pharisees, okay? And, and they look good. They sound good. They probably even smell good. I don't know, but they're just, that's what they do. And so here's what Jesus did. It, he looked at these professional good people, and here's what he says. I tell you the truth. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you, when Jesus said this, it was a slap in the face to everyone there. Slap in the face. Because these people were at the top of the spiritual food chain. The religious chain of of power, authority, example, and all these kinds of things. And so Jesus looks at them and says, you got to do better than that. Okay? Uh, man. And, and I'm sure it got everyone's attention. Then he went on to say, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Sounds good. It's a good, good thing to teach. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Then he went on in verse 27. He says, you've heard I've said, it's been said you, you don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want you to hear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not making goodness easier to achieve. He's not making it like, he's not patting us on the head like spoiled children saying, well, it's all right, you'll grow out of it one day. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, uh, you think you missed the mark. Dude, you totally cratered. You're not even in the neighborhood as the mark, okay? That's what he's doing. He's elevating goodness so high that no one can get there. Now, if I didn't know what I know about Jesus and the Bible and I were just sitting here as the first time in church and I heard somebody say that, I would be like, what am I supposed to do with that? that, that that's hopeless. 
How am I supposed to? I mean, if Jesus says there's, there's no way to actually be good, and here I'm living my whole life as a mistaker trying to balance the equation with adjustments, and now I find out that there aren't enough adjustments. What am I going to do? And you know what Jesus' answer is to that? His answer is, uh, God loves you anyway. You are wreck up from the neck up, and God loves you anyway. You're broken, you do it wrong, I do it wrong. You see, the groups of people Jesus was talking to that day looked at each other in different classes and as, as different levels of relationship with God, and God yanked the rug out from underneath all of them, put them all on the same level, and said, there's no way for you to look at yourself as a mistaker and to adjust yourself into goodness. That's not going to happen, but you know God loves you anyway. And then in Luke chapter 15, he begins to tell these stories to help people wrap their head around how God loves them in spite of their not goodness, their inability to be good. And he tells the story, and it kind of becomes the chapter of lost things. Because because we said that the problem with sin is that it breaks a relationship. And so when our relationship is broken with God, God sees us as lost. We're not close to him. We're not in relationship with him that he desires to be with, in with us. And so to God, we are lost. And he wants to find us. That's the whole point of Luke 15. Is he's, he wants to find us. He wants us to be found. And so this is the, one of the, the best well-known stories of Luke 15 involves the lost son, the prodigal son. You probably know the backstory. I'm just going to cliff note it like super short. There was a son and a father. The son did not want to do what his dad wanted him to do. Never heard that story before, right? Ended up that the son basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead, so give me my inheritance like you are. And he ran off to do his own thing, blow everything that his father gave him, and set about to actively ruin his life. Many of us have been there tried that. In the story, you have the setup of the son that's lost, and, and we come, we're coming to a verse where the son finally figures it out. He's, he's eating slop with hogs, and he finally wakes up and goes, I might have made some bad choices. My mistakes might be a little bit heavier than I thought. And he wakes up and decides he's going to go home. And let's pop in to that one moment, this one little verse. This is the son. He comes home. He's standing before the father. And this is what he says. Father, I sinned. Not I mistaked. Not I screwed up. I sinned and I meant to. Against heaven and against you. I know our relationship's broken. I know there's no way that I can fix this. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Man, what a moment. What a moment. This son has been lost. And the only thing the son has done has had a realization. And his realization was that his choices weren't just mistakes. They were deeper than that. 
They were worse than that. And they broke relationship. Now, stop there. Don't turn to the next page. What do you expect to happen? If you didn't know the story, what do you expect to happen? What would happen if it was your parent, your dad, your mom? I know a few voices in my head that would say, I told you so. You sure did. And you're not done paying yet. Luke 15, 22 has one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. But, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. I sinned against you. I wrecked the relationship. It's on me. I own it. But, but the father said to his servants, Quick. I think that means fast. Maybe fast and in a hurry. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Verse 24 says, For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, when the son owned realized, recognized his sinfulness and that he had broken relationship, the discussion was over. There was no more debating, no no arguments that needed to be had, no, no punishments that needed to be sent forth. All that had to happen now was whatever the father wanted. And what did the father want? The father wanted to love his son. And that's, that's, that's what the father always wants. He wants to love his child. He wants his child back and and safe and and with him and in relationship. He wants to be connected to them. And that's the story of the prodigal son. The son recognizes what he's done and the father has nothing to say about the past. Nothing to say. Now there's only something to say about the future. Now we're putting a robe on the son. We're restoring him in the place of a son. And we're living our life forward as the son because what is done is over. It's, it's, it's accepted in the ownership of the, in that act, that, that realization, that, that recognition of what's been done. And then the father steps into a place of love. And the father, yeah, you and I, we're sinners. God loves you anyway. You're a mess. God loves you anyway. You've done stupid stuff. God loves you anyway. When you beat yourself up tomorrow morning, because tomorrow's Monday, Monday's the official beat yourself up day, right? And you're thinking about all the things you did wrong or didn't do right this weekend. I want you to stop. Just stop. Ate too much, spent too much time, set up too late, whatever. Just stop and go, and God loves me anyway. God loves me anyway. Do I get it? No. Do I receive it? Oh, yeah. I'll take that. So, recognition of sin paves the way to restoration and redemption. So, let's conclude, and let's, let's kind of put to rest this idea of a mistaker. You decide, is it really mistakes? Is it really something you can just fix by doing better tomorrow? And, and, if, and if not, how do we balance this equation now? Sin multiplied by exponential shame and exponential guilt. How do we balance it now? Because fear, 
and judgment and condemnation. That's not what we want. It's not what we need. It's not helpful. How do we fix this equation? So let's just divide it by ownership. Let's own it. Like the son. Father, I sinned against you. I broke the relationship. I, I don't just make mistakes. I do what I want and call them mistakes. Own it. And then what happens when you own it? It's, and here's the thing. I know this isn't easy. Okay? I know that after you've been in church a while, you know the right answer. The answer is easy. The practice, not so much. I know this isn't easy, but here's the thing. What if by taking an honest look at yourself and at your situation and at your mistakes, by just being honest about it and recognizing it and owning it, you could be free of it. See, broken relationships don't need you to do better. Broken relationships need forgiveness. That's what they need. That's the whole issue of mistaker or sinner. Do, do you need to try harder? Or do you need forgiven? Do, do you really want to work your whole life from a ledger in red? Or would you just like all the charges dismissed? And start anew. In a new relationship. Restored. So, we start in a different place. We come back to where we started. Everyone sinned. Everyone. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, but God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. Steve, if you'll come up. I am... I don't know where you're at faith or church back or anything like that. I, I know when you come around church that a lot of Christians can seem kind of weird. We have a different dictionary. We do different things. We seem weird to each other, so it's not really that surprising to us. I want you to know why they're weird. They're weird because they started their life just like everybody else with an equation out of balance a math problem they couldn't fix, a math problem they kept putting in the wrong numbers and the wrong letters, and they tried the works, and they tried to do better, and they tried harder. But no matter what they did, on that one side of the equation, there was always sin exponentially multiplied by guilt and shame. And there was no way to balance the books. But then one day, maybe it was the story of the prodigal son. Maybe it was someone who had been there themselves and was telling the story like I do on a Sunday. Or maybe it was someone they met, a stranger. I don't know. But someone told them, said, man, it's not this hard. The truth is it's actually worse than you think. But God loves you anyway. And if you'll own it, if you'll own it, He'll forgive you. Because the Father 
is ready for you to come home. This is a starting point. We have so much more to cover. What I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to grab that communion cup and stand with me. Jesus said to do this to remember him. And what better day to remember him than on a day when we know why we need to remember him. That thing opens in two parts if you have any challenges there. Just the cellophane and then the foil. Jesus said the body was broken for you. And that his blood was poured out for you. Let's take that together. can wash away what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again worship team nothing but the blood of Jesus oh precious Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If I can help you pray with you, I'll be on my right as the worship team sings.